I'm not on Twitter, but uh, a friend of mine <clears throat> occasionally sends me things that he finds on there that uh, infuriate him, but that he uh, is hesitant to complain about publicly. Um, so he, he sent, uh, not long ago, this um, excerpt from a poem that was published in the, the recent coronavirus poetry anthology that Alice Quinn edited, and that I think has been pretty roundly mocked since it was published. But this um, uh, excerpt was from a poem that uh, I, I won't I won't cite it specifically because I, I think uh, I'm still not convinced that it's not uh, satire. Um, but in any case, it it was uh, in in context or out of context in this excerpt, it was effectively offering uh, the 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 idea that a poem could function as a vaccine, and that really maybe it's just poetry that will save us. Uh, this is, uh, needless to say, um, a, a just disgracefully stupid idea, but it got me thinking about um, this funny tradition poetry has, because there, there is a, a genuinely, there's a non-trivial sense in which poems are magic. I say that with great hesitation. But you know, I you know the the Latin word carmen for poems is uh, it's etymologically this is this is directly linked to our word charm, and it, it was used even by the um, uh, by the Romans as a, a word both for a poem and for a spell or an incantation. The word spell uh, is you know, we use not accidentally both uh, to to talk about how we put together a word and to talk about how we put together a, a you know a magical a string of uh, words that'll, you know, control uh, the physical world around us. So, uh, you know, there there is a there is a tradition. I think of the the uh, the Sortes Virgilianus, uh, which was um, the uh, for for a good long while uh, Romans and then other others after them uh, used Virgil's Aeneid as a, a kind of a, a magical fortune telling device where they would they would choose a line at random and then use that line to interpret whatever crisis they were faced with uh, Virgil's name in fact uh, the spelling of it was altered it was should have been uh, Vergil, where you know uh, v e v e r g i l and it got changed to v i r g i l um, in order to uh, play up the the similarity to the word for wand. Um, uh, I think weirgo, weirgus. I can't. I don't, I don't fucking know Latin. But <clears throat> my point is that uh, um, for for centuries we have conflated the difference between poems and uh, spells. Uh, Harry Potter now is taught you know a new generation and a half of kids that uh, Latin or faux Latin words repeated. Um, in, a, in an incantatory cadence can um, can affect uh, you know, real physical magic in the world. And uh, even the words hocus pocus are linked to, uh, it's, you know, hocus pocus is an altar boy's joke. Um, hocus pocus is a corruption of uh, hocus denim corpus meum, which are the, the magic, literally the magic words that the priest says during mass, uh, this is for this is my body. 
to transform, to transubstantiate the bread into the body of Christ. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm always a little torn when people talk about uh, poetry being magic, because on the one hand, uh, there is something n not insignificant, setting aside all of the, the you know, tradition mongering about using words across space and time to affect sometimes quite poignantly the interior of someone else's experience. Right? You know, that, that's really what the lyric tradition uh, aims for, is to set down on paper or, you know, sing aloud sometimes, uh, if we're going back to the lyre, which gives us the word lyric, to, to set down words that will, um, that will bridge the unbridgeable distance between the inside of one skull and the inside of another, and will cause another person to feel something uh, that you have felt, to put it in kind of simple terms. Um, and yet, on the other hand, poets seemingly, without batting an eye, talk about curing the fucking coronavirus with poetry. So, uh, poems are spells, but poetry is not magic. Maybe that's where I come down. Anyway, we'll talk a little bit about uh, how uh, how this affects uh, how we how we teach kids, how we talk about poems among ourselves um, and how we write some of the very bad poetry that we are incessantly fucking writing. <clears throat> and with that, let's start the fucking time. Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts, a podcast about poetry and other intractable problems. So this uh, this problem of poetry being magical or not quite magical, there's I think there was a recent uh, a short essay published in Poetry Magazine, um, it's March first uh, this year, that gets at some of I think. Where, some of where this comes from. So it's an essay by Margarita Engel called The Care and Feeding of Poetry. Uh, and she uses throughout this m metaphor of poetry as a kind of a wild animal. And she uh, suggests that, that what we need to do most is to um, you know, be, let it roam free while sort of making sure that it has what it needs. Really, so what, what becomes clear uh, fairly quickly, is that she's talking about uh, poetry as, uh, well, here. Um, nurturing poetry is like bringing a wild creature indoors. We need to learn which leaves, fruits, and flowers it can eat, and which will make it sick or destroy its free spirit. In other words, poetry is an experience, not a genre. Now, that's, a, a, uh, I think, a key distinction. The genre thing, you know, uh, is less crucial than I think this, this, what matters about poetry is what it feels like. And this comes up again, um, 
Later in the same paragraph, she says, uh, no two poets interpret a subject in exactly the same way, and each individual poet is likely to interpret her own poem differently on two different days. She might not be able to tell you what her verse means, but she will be able to describe how she felt while leading a wild creature across a bridge of words from her mind to yours. So the point here is that uh, poetry is an experience, and, and crucially, poetry is about the experience of the poet. It's not about the experience of the reader. It's about the experience of the poet. Now, she is largely here in this essay talking about uh, introducing poetry to children. And I, you know, I have no, there's certain things she says that <laughs> only an asshole would argue with. She describes having just an obviously uh, despicable teacher in, in high school. She says, um, it never occurred to me as a teenager that poetry could be disdained until I was placed in a high school honors creative writing class where the teacher said of my sonnet sequence about snails that snails were not a noble enough subject for the form. I disagreed. I loved nature. What could be more heroic than a, sm a small, slow creature facing life bravely? Well, sh sure, it, it, we understand why you know one might, in a, a vacuum, raise an eyebrow at a poem about a snail, but good God, any teacher to, I mean I can't it would be hard to imagine a teacher today who if uh, presented with a high school student who was on her own composing whole sonnet sequences about any animal about any subject for that matter it's hard to imagine a teacher who would not at least immediately be encouraging who would not at least meet that with uh, some enthusiasm. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, her, her teacher was was obviously horrible, and she she um, cites later uh, in graduate school, Tomas Rivera taught me that it's fine to write from the heart, without without caring about anyone's judgment, without worrying about publication, without feeling caged by expectations. Well, and again, of course, of course, it's fine to do that. This is uh, what people do all the time in uh, um, in first drafts, in diaries, in uh, you know, letters or just notes to yourself. The, the, the key here, I think, is that her, um, her emphasis is all about not scaring children away from poetry. But I think there are times when uh, there's a, there is a, a sleight of hand that happens, or there's a, a kind of a conflation that occurs. Um, she uh, talks several times about po uh, poetry as being like music um, uh, here. When a teacher asks students what a poem means, the joy of hearing mu music might be lost, and fears of failing to interpret correctly can be triggered. Instead of what does this poem mean, I suggest asking how does this poem make you feel? Music is a fluctuating emotional experience, not a rigid formula that always produces identical results. Well, that's true, uh, except that, um, as any musician knows, music requires just extraordinary discipline. And, and in fact, the uh, the rigorous repetition of often extremely rigid formulas. Um, you know, the, the the first element of practice for any musician uh, is scales. So you know, I think there's the, there is this interesting slippage because in the, you know just a just a paragraph or so earlier she talked about the poem as being an experience of the poet, and here. She's asking, you know, how does the poem make you feel? I think how does the poem make you feel is actually an excellent question for a teacher to ask. A far better question than what does the poem mean? We can talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, but 
again, it only works if the poem makes you feel something. And if the whole point of the poem is, is how it feels to the poet, then we're really dealing with something else. Similarly here, I think she conflates the experience of music, which can be uh, a sort of a spontaneous uh, a surge of feeling of, of, you know, without necessarily any clear structure to it, without certainly without any you know discipline on the part of the, the uh, listener necessarily. But that's very different than what it takes to make music. You know, we would never suggest that all you need to do in order to make music is to be able to feel something when you listen to music. Um, here, uh, we're, we're sometimes not even asking uh, that much of poetry. She says later, you know, how can we as adults help children preserve their natural love of rhythm, rhyme, and other aspects of musical language? Children do have a natural love of rhythm, rhyme, and other aspects of musical language. But again, there's, there's you know, the, it's one thing not to scare kids away, but it's another to suggest that that they naturally will produce rhythm, rhyme, and other aspects of musical language, when, of course, these things, as with music, require a great deal of practice and often very boring, repetitious practice. Um, she, you know, she gives her to-be-sure paragraph uh, in this essay is, a, is um, really, it's just sort of this uh, gesture of uh, acknowledgement that that all disciplines require some practice. But that's really about all she says. Um, and, then, and then she immediately follows it up by saying, if children end with awkward rhymes, adults can guide them toward other forms, such as free verse, tanka, and haiku. Well, I mean, I won't kind of speak to, you know, what, say, masters of the tanka and haiku might think about, about sending kids who, who can't master rhyme their way as if that there's no other discipline, as if the... the I, mean, I think this is really, what this really tells you is that the the... The first thing that most of us can recognize with very little training in poetry is rhyme. It's very easy to recognize. And, you know, it's, it's not that hard to recognize when it's off. Though, honestly, even just rhyming, even just constructing a true rhyme, takes a little bit of instruction. Uh, and, and she again, she treats this as something that's, uh, that's all sort of meant to come spontaneously from within. Uh, and that's not her invention. That's a very, very old idea. We can talk um, uh, more about uh, in a little bit. But I, I want to I jump now to a, um, a much better uh, piece of writing. This is, this is not an essay. This is a, a, a short story by Catherine Dunn that was published uh, about a year ago in The New Yorker. Um, this is uh, called The Resident Poet. And this is... Uh, it's it is a really a, um, a pretty delightful story. I, I recommend go. You can go to the New Yorker website and, and read it there. Um, it is uh, not unlike, and I don't know when it was written because I know uh, Catherine Dunn um, died. I think a few years before this was published. Um, so I don't I don't know the order of composition, but it is uh, reminiscent of Cat Person which, of course, uh, was also published in The New Yorker and, and got a, a great deal of attention. And I'd say that the primary differences, apart from the, the, the um, theme of poetry, the primary differences uh, here um, between, the, between these two stories are the, you know, uh, it is, again, a young woman who, who takes up in a, a kind of a, a disappointing sexual relationship with a, uh, an older man who is... Um, 
both uh, uh, self-conscious about his age while, while sort of wielding it against her like a weapon and who's ultimately just a, a totally uh, a vicious and narcissistic person. Um, she, the young woman in both stories is also not uh, no um, treat. Uh, I'd say that the, the character in Catherine Dunn's story, The Resident Poet, is probably a little bit savvier than the character in uh, Cat Person. And, you know, the biggest difference between the slightly older jerk in The Resident Poet and the slightly older jerk in Cat Person is that uh, in The Resident Poet, um, The Resident Poet takes place some uh, decades earlier. So the aging pseudo hipster in Cat Person sort of realizes that he's uh, he, he knows um, on some level what a loser he is. Uh, whereas the resident poet um, uh, has all of the uh, unquestioning sense of self-importance of a, you know, a white male baby boomer in his prime. So, you know, it is, it does feel different in that way, but uh, I think the, um, you know, the, the, a lot of the story is about the, respective performances that these characters give in kind of acting out this this uh, weekend away, this, you know, ostensibly romantic weekend away that, that it, you know, clearly neither of them is especially pleased with. Uh, and that, you know, the, the young woman is, is just at every turn clearly, I and mean, she is narrating it, but she's also just uh, clearly much more um, uh, perceptive and, uh, and funny and witty and a better writer. Than this guy. I mean, she, throughout, uh, while you know, protesting that, that he's the real poet and she's not, you know, she she can't uh, uh, even. Um, so he says uh, she she gives a self conscious performance of her ability to uh, to um, paint pictures with the language, and he responds by saying, "You really should write poetry." Uh, and her response is, "Oh, I think poetry takes a different kind of takes different kinds of feelings than the set I've got." Uh, and she says this very deliberately. Uh, it's a walk-in line for him. He fastens on a puffy grin and slips it to me with a non standard nonchalant wag of his head. A poet, he says. He does the sonorous levity so obviously. We are all such bad actors. That's a great line. We are all such bad actors. Uh, suits this this um, suits this story as well as Cat Person, I would say. And then uh, the resident poet follows up. A poet is a man who runs out naked into every thunderstorm, hoping to be struck by lightning. That's that really gets at I think how the characters in the story uh, look at or want to look at poetry. It is as much a lifestyle as anything. I mean, you know, in, in this case, it may be both lifestyle and identity. That the real meaning of poetry is not what any given poem might due to any given person, you know, she, she barely refers to his poetry at all, though, you know, he's been her teacher and uh, she has apparently read some of it. Um, it's, it's taken almost, it's, she doesn't even bother really to denigrate him as a poet. It's almost just a given that the poetry is bad and that it's, it almost doesn't matter that it's bad. Like badness is even more definition than it, than it would, um, than it deserves. Uh, she does her language in, in this story is really delightful. She, he sort of pressures her to um, perform sexually on him during their, their drive. Uh, and she, 
she says in reaching through you know reaching over to his uh pants she says this thigh is a pudding this thigh is pudding a pudding with a bone in it the spoon perhaps and then her oh god her description of trying to reach over to grab hold of him uh for a hand job is i rummage dutifully in the wool covered pudding that's oof. and she does she also i should say has um one of the best descriptions of bad sex i've ever read here okay and it's i think it, it's uh she it's it's the um it's the reaction that's so uh that, that really um nails it so she says i'd describe it all but it's just a pain a drab fumbling like nothing so much as a poorly cooked meal that is so ostentatiously served that the diners are obliged to comment and erupt periodically with over-enthusiastic oh my's and wonderfuls so throughout the, the story i should say she's doing much of what good poetry does right it's, it's evocative it shows us new ways to use the language uh you know brings us into uh scenes and images and sensations and it uh makes us laugh or makes us feel something makes us cringe uh, so she's doing this throughout it's it you know it's it sort of goes without saying that she's a far better writer than this guy um but both of them come back a few times to this uh this sense of poetry as identity poetry as lifestyle uh here she gives this sort of longish description of him and her and how they both uh sort of relate to and think about poetry um he's he tells her that he has he has given himself he's so sensitive his soul is such a poet soul that he actually gave himself asthma by reading an article about air pollution uh and that it's his susceptibility to that that um that gave him this uh, which one imagines he kind of thinks of as almost a, a romantic um, era consumption. But here, here's her description of him that leads into her description of herself. He, having been married twice and published a book of poems, having grown his beard and refused to mow his lawn, having succeeded in transforming a page of liberal newsprint into a chronic ailment, having assumed all these forms and wandered hatless in the rain, hoping to be recognized and told who he is, must continue the outline he is sketching for himself complete the design. And I, Sally, having been mooed at by my peers, having skulked against walls and sat up nights searching through the Reader's Digest for jokes to insert into the conversations of the following day, having been for too long involuntarily good, have tapped into unsuspected energies in my current project. I have worked my way through reluctant soda jerks, potential painters, a good pianist who is studying to become a bad psychologist, a traveling daffodil salesman, which is a, oof, that is a poetic uh, vocation if ever there was one. And now here tonight, I have searched for, if not precisely located, the cock of the resident poet. Maybe he'll write a poem about me or give me a passing grade in English. The painters did portraits of me, though they were just pastel sketches, convenient for one night stands. I filed them in the left-hand drawer of my desk, separated by tissue paper. The pianist, a virgin until he appealed to me, wrote a tune and played it for me in the chapel. A bad poem would fit into the collection nicely. So she she is still sort of searching for who she is, but you know both she and the resident poet seemingly think of uh, this this thing, poetry, as being um, a, a condition, a, a 
calling a, a set of uh, um, accessories, uh, you know, furniture almost, but it, it, the poems themselves are, are almost never anything but tokens at, at most. Um, she does have this moment where we see we see a little bit of a a little bit of a more um, earnest uh, um, aspiration um, to to something like maybe uh, life as a poet or as a writer. She you know having having uh, really just become utterly uh, disillusioned with the the weekend away with Mr. Lucas the resident poet. She uh, she. Uh, makes a decision. She says, I shall read the Greeks when I get back, I resolve. Picture long evenings in the warmth of the lamplight with the frenzy of the weather shut out and even the voices in the hallway beyond my attention. I won't be driven out into the dark, searching for excitement anymore. I shall look it in the face this time, look the end in the face. So this is, you know, a less performative, uh, less outwardly uh, focused vision of a kind of a, a, a calling to to live in books or for books, it is still a little bit of a, a romantic fantasy, um, and that that uh, suspicion is borne out by the very end of the of the story when she's finally dropped off. The guy, as with the cat person, the guy is just revealed as being uh, just totally cowardly and craven and. Uh, uh, greedy and just sort of pathetic. Uh, he finally drops her off at her dorm, both angry at her and uh, scared of her. Uh, and she um, she goes home. She walks inside and she's uh, she's staring at the window, but it's she's she's too close. I I am too close to the window, and my reflection is a silhouette surrounding the parking lot, with the whites of my eyes rolling in the black. Ah, poor Sally, I mutter at my bleary eyes. Even when there's no place left to be hurt, it seems there is something that can be diminished, whittled away. It will probably be weeks before I can even brag about this. So it is a it is a merciless satire and, um, and a really uh, delightful one. Again, the story of the resonant poet, you can find it on the New Yorker website by Catherine Dunn. Uh, but it, it um, I think, does a, a pretty good job of enacting or, uh, you know, dramatizing this vision of poetry as a uh, condition or as a kind of an, uh, a, an elusive state of being. Um, now, the, the line that the um, poet offers her about what a poet, his, his definition of a poet, uh, a poet is a man who, a poet is a man who runs out naked into every thunderstorm hoping to be struck by lightning. That's not just any image. That's a very specific image. And it comes from uh, Randall Jarrell, uh, a real and and very good poet, uh, a the rare sober maniac among uh, a field uh, heavily populated with drunken maniacs. Uh, so Randall Jarrell's line, which is which is I think importantly different, is a good poet is someone who manages in a lifetime of standing out in thunderstorms to be struck by lightning five or six times, a dozen or two dozen times, and he is great, right? The, the resonant poet, the poetaster in the story, hopes to be struck by lightning 
but really, as much as anything, his nakedness in every thunderstorm. Remember, he runs out in every thunderstorm. Is uh, that's as much? That's what makes him a poet, right? It's this willingness, this uh, this vulnerability, but also this performative willingness to uh, throw himself um, out into the world. Um, if you want a very early image of a sort of a hapless buffoon, or the poet as hapless buffoon, you can look at Plato's Ion. Um, and in, in Ion, Plato goes to a man who is a, uh, a reciter of poems. Now, this is also key. Plato doesn't distinguish, or at least Socrates doesn't distinguish, between poets and reciters of poetry. That is, in both cases, the, the, the man, the, the person, the poet, is just a, a vehicle. Um, and the poetry, the tenor, is transmitted through him. So, you know, whether it's transmitted because you're reciting Homer and you didn't write Homer, uh, or it's transmitted because you are Homer, and really this is just, you know, the muse singing of the wrath of Achilles. In either case, you're ju you just happen to be there. You know, you're the conductor for the lightning. You didn't invent the lightning. Um, and the reason that, that Socrates bothers to talk to Ion at all is to demonstrate that Ion can't account for what makes his poetry good. That, you know, Socrates is trying to demonstrate the, um, uh, a, a distinction between a skill or an ability to do something and an ability to explain that thing, to account for that thing. He's going to all of these, uh, you know, people who are expert in various ways throughout Athens. He does this in you know, many of the dialogues to say, hey, you can do this thing very well, but I believe that you can't actually explain why you can do it very well. And, and Ion uh, uh, proves him right very efficiently. It's a very short dialogue because Ion can't really explain anything. He, he speculates dumbly uh, in, a, in a few ways. But uh, the, the key here is that he's able to do something. There is a thing he is able, there is a, there is an effect for which he cannot account. And what is that effect? Well, there's an effect that the poem that he recites or wrote, writes or whatever, the poem that is transmitted through him has an effect on somebody. And that's the thing that needs explanation. You know, for the poet and the, the, the college girl in Catherine Dunn's story, or for the poets and the poets and child, you know, child poets in Margarita Engel's essay, poetry is a, is a, is an internal, at best, at best poetry is the experience that the poet has of loving language or loving playing with words or listening to sounds. Um, we've, we've really lost track of, uh, any effect on any readership or audience beyond uh, the poet himself or herself. So I think there's there's a um, there is some reason that this is the case. I think you know as it said, neither Margaret Engel nor Catherine Dunn invented this idea that the poet uh, that poetry is something that happens only within the poet um, and the poet as as a, a um, you know a, a fool or a, even a pompous fool unable to account for his own work that's a very old image but 
something happens in the 20th century. Uh, I'm going to, uh, in the next uh, episode, maybe, or the one after that, I've been, uh, I'm not, I haven't decided yet. There's a, an Adam Kirsch essay I'm going to talk about that, that gets into some of the specific history of this, but I want to give sort of a brief, um, uh, treatment. Um, I think that, so for the lion's share of the 20th century, uh, this particular approach to teaching poetry dominated American classrooms. This is the new criticism or the, the methods of the new critics, um, largely propagated by uh, the Cleanth Brooks and Reverend Warren's, you know, massive, massive uh, bestseller, Understanding Poetry, which is still a very good guide to exactly what it advertises. Um, the, the problem, and uh, I, I think that the, I have very seldom read a criticism of the new critics that, um, that I thought was quite fair. They, they tend to be, um, uh, accused of saying and claiming lots of things that they never said. Uh, but setting that uh, to, to the side for the moment, um, the impression that many people have of the new critics is that in the impression that they gave, you know, or that, you know, was given on their behalf to lots and lots of students and teachers throughout the 20th century was that poems are uh, sort of the key to reading poetry is understanding what it means. Now, I, I agree with Margarita Engel that this is, this is probably not quite the question to ask. Uh, and um, I think it's important to remember that, that you know, the new critics were trying to come up with a way to understand poems that uh, was, was something other than merely uh, memorizing the biography of the poet or uh, digesting the, the, the moral instruction of the poem. And they were trying to, to, you know, identify poems as sophisticated aesthetic objects. And, uh, you know, for better or worse, the emphasis falls on a kind of an interpretation. A poem, poem is meaning, poem is ultimately a kind of a riddle or a box to be unlocked. And you see very quickly where that becomes a problem because plenty of people have a hard time uh, understanding poems, or at least understanding them in the way that they're meant to be understood. I do remember as a fifth grader having a teacher read, Oh, Captain, My Captain to us over and over and sort of hammering uh, this the point about the end of the Civil War uh, until she finally gave up and explained to us that the captain was Abraham Lincoln. How stupid were we for not getting that? And that's kind of, I think, a, a classic... Um, bad result of the uh, the long-time dominance of the, the new critical strategies for dealing with poetry. But um, I think there's a there's a a, uh, a combination of things happen. For one, there's a, an emphasis that people are taught from a, from childhood on poems as things to be understood. We have to interpret them. What does it mean? There's the poem and then what does it mean? The, with a question that I always oh fucking hated getting in school was what is the author trying to say because for god's sake i mean if he's a decent author presumably he's saying it but uh but this is a de the default is what is he trying to say there's the poem and then ne next to that there's what the poem means and, and the, the goal is to to dig into that second quantity and to identify it uh, accurately or at least to the teacher's satisfaction. So this thing happens where, where, where poems become, you know, we, we, we begin to think of poems as things to be cracked, 
codes to be cracked. And then uh, the other thing that happens is, of course, uh, that, that, you know, within really the first half, but I mean, but then overwhelmingly by the um, the middle and the, uh, the second half of the 20th century, uh, free verse dominates poetry until, uh, you know, it, it becomes absolutely the, the, the given, the expectation that, that by the time I'm in college, uh, in, you know, 2001, it is a, an oddity. And I went to a Southern state school, um, but it is, it is a, a, it was bizarre when somebody in a class or at a submitting to a, you know, the school magazine, it was, it was bizarre when somebody opted to write in meter and rhyme that was considered a, um, very, certainly very, uh, out of fashion, but, uh, also just sort of a little bit inexplicable. So free verse and an absolute free verse is really the given. So what's important here, and again, Adam Kirsch is going to go into this more, but that, that basically when from the outside poetry becomes a discipline that is not only a little bit mysterious as it maybe has been for quite a while, but also seems to have no technical requirements at all. And, uh, you know, is meant to be interpreted or understood in this kind of almost uh, religious way, um, the way that we, you know, we might try to interpret scripture and puzzle over it and, and then uh, acquiesce to the determination of some authority, be, it, be, in, uh, be he a priest or a teacher. Uh, you know, poetry begins to become arcane, begins to become uh, something that people frequently don't get. They, they expect not to get it. And when people do it, either they seem to be doing whatever they want, you know, the, the classic my kid could, could paint that um, response, or whatever they're doing is something we can't account for. Uh, I think it becomes easier and easier to see poetry as... Uh, um, as something that, you know, as a as a lifestyle or an identity or a condition in which the actual result doesn't matter, because uh, nobody <laughs> is responding to it anyway. That if there is a thing to account for, it is not uh, an effect that has been produced on another person. It's a, a way of being that one might observe. And then it becomes really important, as with the resident poet story, to demonstrate that you're it, you fit that, you're, you suit that, you have that style, you're, um, you know, you're a real poet, you know, which you demonstrate not by writing anything that does anything to anybody, but you're a real poet, uh, which you, you know, you show in your clothing or in your manner of speaking or in your resistance to what, uh, Catherine Dunn calls, um, the, the, uh, hypocritical bourgeois plot of sexual mores. Um, so uh, this all brings me, I think, to a line that kept coming back to me as I thought this over and trying to plan this episode was a very famous line from uh, Archibald MacLeish's uh, poem, Ars Poetica. It's a beloved poem. It was published, I think, originally in Poetry Magazine. Let me see if I can find this in uh, 1926, yeah. uh, so not quite 100 years ago, uh, 95 years ago, it was published in Poetry Magazine. So uh, Ars Poetica obviously um, comes from 
uh, it's a Latin for you know, the art of poetry. And so this is his kind of statement about what poetry should be or what a poem should be. He does focus on the poem specifically. Uh, I'll just read Ars Poetica um, and doubtless you'll recognize some, some lines, but uh, we'll talk about them in some more detail in a moment. Ars Poetica by Archibald MacLeish. A poem should be palpable and mute as a globed fruit, dumb as old medallions to the thumb, silent as the sleeve-worn stone of casement ledges where the moss has grown. A poem should be wordless as the flight of birds. A poem should be motionless in time as the moon climbs, leaving as the moon releases twig by twig the night-entangled trees, leaving as the moon behind the winter leaves, memory by memory, the mind. A poem should be motionless in time as the moon climbs. A poem should be equal to, not true, for all the history of grief, an empty doorway and a maple leaf, for love, the leaning grasses and two lights above the sea, a poem should not mean, but be. It was that last couplet, uh, or not a couplet, the last two lines that kept coming back for me, the a poem should not mean, but be. So, you know, Ars Poetica is a charming poem and it has a lot of delightful sounds in it. Um, he does a very good job of using uh, meter and rhyme in order to make uh, otherwise sort of mystifying statements or, or phrases uh, ring really true for all the history of grief an empty doorway and a maple leaf. God, that sounds great. I don't fucking understand what it's saying, but if I'm to, you know, take McLeish at his word, it doesn't matter. He's not necessarily trying to mean anything. He's just letting us enjoy, uh, the, the, this play with language. So, uh, I think that this poem is though importantly wrong about some things. Uh, the, the, the first one really, well, there are two, I'll say two main things. I think this poem is, is very specifically and revealingly wrong about, um, a poem should be equal to not true. So the poem seems to be sort of, uh, you know, resisting the, uh, you know, Marta, Margarita Engel's bad teacher's insistence on, you know, a, a noble subject matter or on uh, the meaning of poems. This seems to be the, what this poem is arguing against, but a poem should be equal to not true. That's, uh, I think that's exactly the opposite of what, um, well, I think he's got it exactly backwards there. Equal to, again, suggests that there is the poem, and then there is this other thing that the poem equals, the poem matches. There's a correspondence between two different things. Uh, and that's not true of metaphors, it's not true of images, it's not true of really of language at all. It's not at all how language works. You know, language is not a mathematical system. It's a system that requires a human mind in order to have meaning at all. It, it evokes things. It doesn't um, quantify them. So I would say the poem uh, should not be equal to, but true truth being uh, sort of a, a loyalty, a holding, a troth, uh, holding two things. Um, I think again of the, you know, the Greek uh, aletheia, where truth is not, uh, is not so much a, um, a permanent mathematical 
exactitude. It's not a, a, a sum that resides forever in correspondence to some, you know, precise statement on earth. It's a revelation, a disclosedness, that truth is actually indistinguishable from the realization of truth. It's, you know, not, not unlike epiphany, which to me, if there is truth in poetry, it's that truth. It's the truth of feeling something as true as you read it, as you experience it. And then, and then the, the, the real killer is the end of the poem, which I think is, is half right. A poem should not mean, but be. But I, he gets that last verb wrong. A poem should not mean, right? I do think that, the, you know, whoever you blame it on or credit it to, I think the emphasis on, on discovering the meanings of poems is, is, is a, a, an error. But uh, the, the correction is not an inert uh, a celebration of poems as static objects that, that uh, exist apart from people. Uh, poetry does not have value apart from people. It, it has value through people. The poem should not mean, but do, is how I would put that. Uh, because again, um, it's one thing if you write a journal. It's one thing if you write poetry as a way to kind of heal yourself, as a way to work through your own therapy. But that's not actually what we're talking about when we talk about poetry. What we're talking about when we talk about poetry, back to Plato and Ion, is a thing that did something to someone else. It had an effect. It made you gasp. You know, if we uh, take the Greeks at their word, um, when... Uh, when uh, in Aeschylus, in the third of the um, third play of the Oresteia, when the Furies were revealed on stage, women in the audience miscarried. Not that that's uh, a, a thing to celebrate or a worthy goal, but but the point is that the, the the poetry is supposed to have an effect on you. It is supposed to do something to you, uh, and that's where I think uh, McLeish really uh, misses an opportunity. Because um, he, he he's right. He's right to to resist meaning as the point of poetry, but he forgets that poems are tools, and they are tools that are meant to be used to produce an effect on human beings. And um, with that, I've gone on for quite a while. I'm gonna uh, uh, stop here, and uh, we'll take a brief break, and then I'm gonna read you a poem that I think will have an effect on you, or at least has had an effect on me. So this poem is called Halloween, and it's by Gertrude Schnackenberg. Um, I couldn't find uh, whether it appeared in a magazine or not uh, before, uh, but it it um, was published in the collection Portraits and Elegies, um, which I think came out in 19, 1982. Uh, so this is called Halloween. I'll read it. Uh, maybe probably I'll probably read it twice. It's it's fairly short. Halloween by Gertrude Schnackenberg. The children's room glows radiantly by the light of pumpkins on the windowsill. That fiercely grin on sleeping boy and girl. She stirs and mutters in her sleep. Goodbye. Who scared herself a little in a sheet and walked the streets with devils and dinosaurs 
and bleeping green men flown from distant stars. We sit up late and smoke and talk about our awkward loving Frankenstein in bed, who told his sister that it isn't true, that real men in real boxes never do haunt houses. But the king of the dead has taken off his mask tonight and twirled his cape and vanished, and we are his, who know beyond all doubt how real he is. Out of his bag of sweets he plucks the world. That's a good one. You know, it's a little bit like, uh, I think of um, a very different poem, but uh, an April Sunday is an early um, Philip Larkin poem. Uh, and it, I think similarly, just has such a absolutely devastating ending. And is, you know, there there's some spots earlier on where it's a little wobbly, where maybe it's not, he doesn't quite have the total mastery that he had later on. And there there's some spots in this poem where I, you know, I think it's, it wobbles a little. I don't, uh, I think having the, the, the girl say goodbye in her sleep, you know, goodbye is a word that, that uh, in addition to fulfilling the rhyme, re resonates with the, the parents' sort of sober grown-up fears, but it seems a little less plausible coming from the girl's mouth. And then there's, a, there's always a, a little uh, ambiguity with uh, our, our awkward loving Frankenstein in bed. Of course, they're, they're talking about him in bed. But m more importantly, uh, I think it's just a terrific poem. Um, there are some really nice little subtleties in it. The children's room glows radiantly by, there's a line break there, the light of pumpkins on the windowsill. So it's the, what this is sort of literally saying is that the pumpkins, the jack-o'-lanterns are, are, are lighting the room, but that construction, the room glows radiantly by, suggests that this is, the room is sort of passing away, that, that even as the parents are looking at it or, or thinking of it, it's, it's sort of whizzing by. It's passing into the future, going away, uh, and and that's you know that is then picked up by the the girls talking in her sleep, saying goodbye. Um, but there's also a wonderful uh, uh, parallel disillusionment um, where the 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 little girl is is genuinely afraid of all of the the Halloween ghosts and monsters and scary things, and she she has a real fear of a, of a. Um, either a, a vampire or a mummy or a ghost or something, some you know, dead man. Uh, and, you know, this is make-believe. It's Halloween. They're masks and costumes and, and uh, pretend. And her older brother is, he's old enough to know that. He's old enough to know, uh, oh, well, this is make-believe. It's, you know, relax. It's not, you don't, there's nothing to be afraid of. But then we step back again <laughs> to the parents and they... Are, of course, have, are old enough now to know that it comes back around again. Uh, and, you know, this is the feeling I think I have as, a, as an adult, especially with little children, when I see the neighbors put uh, these sort of grisly skeleton figures in their yards or, or, or build graveyards in their yards, which I, I you know, I... Uh, succumb to my my daughter's demands. We had a sort of a, a stripped down version of one in our year, but it's just horrifying, you know. It's like as a little kid, it's either scary for my littlest daughter or the older daughter who's old enough that it's it's sort of fun and spooky. But then for me, it's just scary again. Uh, the King of the Dead is is real. Uh, I started this episode talking about magic, and 
uh, you know, I spent a, a lot of time uh, over the last you know few years introducing my older daughter to myths and, and stories and religious stories, um, legends and, and um, folklore from different traditions. And uh, I, I, I don't believe in God, but you know, as she kind of interrogated me about this, it, it came to me that there are sort of three sets of gods that I do believe in. And I believe in them in the sense that I think that what they are said to be or represent is pretty inarguably the case in the world. And, and these are the muses, the furies, and the fates. Uh, and I mean that, you know, what I mean is that uh, you know, hard work and practice uh, can be rewarded by inspiration, uh, but inspiration is also fickle, and uh, we, no method can fully guarantee it, and no theory, psychological, neurological, or otherwise, can fully explain it. Um, as for the the furies, you know, there is something there is. You know, uh, there is such a thing as vengeance, as guilt. There are these deep, violent, dark, bloody feelings that come up from within us, both with regard to our own sins and uh, with regard to others. This is something, there's something primal here, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, certain old, old uh, uh, sacred lines. You know, you know, seeing those cross, something bubbles up inside us. And it may be something that's invisible to everyone around us, as was the case for the Furies much of the time. Um, and then the Fates uh, are this implacable uh, force that uh, without any um, interest in fairness or symmetry or balance, uh, you know, determines when our lives get cut short and they all get cut at some point. Um, and we, we can't know when, and we can't know why, and there is no why, uh, or if there is, we will never understand it. So in that sense, you know, anything, any description of the furies, the muses or the fates, uh, you could look up is, is hard to refute. Um, and that's what I think about when I read this poem, you know, the king of the dead, the, the skeleton, you know, the skeleton and the cowl with the scythe, uh, or however you want to depict them that's real that's a real thing and and that's i think you know it's it's a it's a fairly obvious image but it's a very i think well deployed one she says he has taken off his mask tonight of course this being a a um a halloween poem that's that's just exactly perfect and then there, you know, one last little note you know the um world is one of those words like self that's just real hard to rhyme in a poem without drawing attention, you know, without uh, tipping your hand, but because there just aren't that many good rhymes for it. And she's found twirled, which is maybe better than curled is one, or, or furled. You know, anytime you see furled in a poem, you're about to see world. Um, but I think uh, it, it's it's nicely managed here because the, the poem is not, the rhyme is not, the rhyme scheme is regular, it's ABBA, but the, um, the meter is a little bit uh, irregular and uh, um, or at least uh, admits uh, a lot of substitution and the rhyme is um, often uh, consonant rather than true and I think as as obvious as, as you know a line break on twirled should have been 
Uh, I, I never saw that last line coming. Um, maybe maybe I'm naive, but I think that was that was nicely handled. I also want to say uh, I'm real sick of hearing every poem in which uh, the rhyme is buried or, or muted praised purely because the rhyme is muted, uh, as if rhyme and rhyme and the Margarita Engel essay I didn't even get to it, but she she sort of has this passing shot at end rhyme uh, as if end rhyme is somehow uh, silly or juvenile. Um, it's not good to mute rhyme just because you're muting rhyme, but in some cases it is useful. Um, and here I think it enhances the effect of that, that shock uh, of the end of the poem. So I'm going to read this one more time and then sign off. This is Halloween by Gertrude Schneckenberg. The children's room glows radiantly by the light of pumpkins on the windowsill, that fiercely grin on sleeping boy and girl. She stirs and mutters in her sleep, goodbye, who scared herself a little in a sheet and walked the streets with devils and dinosaurs and bleeping green men flown from distant stars. We sit up late and smoke and talk about our awkward, loving Frankenstein in bed, who told his sister that it isn't true, that real men in real boxes never do haunt houses. But the king of the dead has taken off his mask tonight and twirled his cape and vanished. And we are his, who know beyond all doubt how real he is. Out of his bag of sweets, he plucks the world. All right, that was a good one. Okay, uh, this has been Slee Ricketts. Uh, I'm Matthew Buckley Smith. Um, if you uh, if you liked what you heard, please do subscribe, uh, rate, review, uh, tell tell a friend about it. Um, our music uh, comes courtesy of Eternal, sometimes listed as Eternal producer, and the cover art, which just got figured out, comes courtesy of Daniel Alexander Smith, my brother, which is pretty good. All right, uh, until next time. <laughs>